Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Psalm 29, a Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert at Kabesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Thunderbolts, singe my white head, and thou all shaking thunder, smite flat the rotundity of the world, crack nature's mould, and Germans spill at once that make ingrateful man. Do you think I'd make it on stage, Skill? <laughs> Does anyone recognise where this literature comes from? Yeah, you got full points in your. Uh, English leave insert, didn't you, Lana? Um, that's right, Shakespeare's King Lear, Act 3, Scene 2. A play about tragedy of a king preparing for old age. He divides his power between his three daughters, depending on how much they each show him love. In this scene, the protagonist is yelling at a storm. King Lear is cursing the weather, asking it to do its worst against him. And if you studied this in school like Alana, you'll know that for Lear, it wasn't really the physical storm that was causing his outlash of frustration, but the dysfunctional family situation he found himself in with the rejection of his three daughters. The emotions we see revealed in his words are fearfulness, apprehensiveness. He's scared by thunder and lightning embarrassment, anxiousness. Lear's real storm was the breakdown of his family, mental health, and the reality of old age. Now, can you imagine looking at someone in Dublin, out on Camden Street, when it's a bit windy outside, raining a bit heavier than usual, with a bit of thunder, and they look up to the sky, and in all seriousness, start shouting, you clouds are absolutely mad, how dare you be getting on like that, you're ruining my day, causing a ruckus, cursed be to you. It might appear slightly irrational, however I did find myself doing this on Friday when I was scooting to Vanessa's for dinner and the rain was pouring down and I did have to laugh at God, I was like I see what you're doing here. But apart from that, it is quite absurd, isn't it? Trying to control something as strong and uncontrollable as the weather. What strength as humans do we have towards the power of the skies? Well, we don't. Us sitting here in church today, 
We don't have much power over Earth at all, actually. We're maybe not as invincible as we thought. But David, the writer of our eloquent poem in the Psalms, suggests someone that does have a significant power over the mighty waters. In this story, through the power of God's voice, the storm comes out of heaven onto the waters, thunder and lightning striking in the skies from the forests of Lebanon around the deserts of Kadesh. And the people in the temple experience this and cry out glory in fear, in awe. Then we see the land has been flooded in verse 10. A hurricane in essence. An earthquake that destroys the landscape, the whole of the country, north to south. And somehow, the story of the storm finishes in verses 10 and 11 on earth with people receiving strength and peace from a king. God's glory and power, brought through his voice, is shown to be above the storm. Let's explore the story of David's poem a bit more to find out what this is all about. And we're going to do it Shakespeare style. (laughs) Act one, location, heaven. God's power and glory. What is it? Well, David starts off our story here in heaven. Look at verse one with me. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe, what does that mean? means to honour or to give. David is talking to the angels, that's who the heavenly beings are, and he's telling them to recognise God's glory, his strength, his glory once more, and the splendour of his holiness. David is beginning to set the scene and introduces us to the protagonist of the psalm, a God who is great and grand in glory. I don't know about you, but God's glory is something I struggled to get my head around. And I was wrecking my head trying to think how to contend it, how to make it the simplest of words for today. And then it struck me. That's the point, isn't it? It's indescribable. That's what God's glory is. It's incomprehensible. And this is core to understanding who he is as God. But luckily, we have the whole Bible, and God's glory is shown across multiple stories in it, particularly in the second book of the Old Testament Exodus, where God reveals glory multiple times to the Israelites, God's chosen people at that time, as a sign of his guidance and protection, but also to the prophet Moses in a very personal way. A particular story of glory in Exodus 33. Moses is wrestling with God in prayer, begging God not to leave him and the Israelites alone without God's presence in the wilderness. Or else what would be the point? Moses says to God, we're no one without you. We need you as our guide. And God says he will answer Moses' prayer because of their relationship they have together. He wasn't going to let the evil, the rejection of the Israelites stop him. God knew the sincerity of Moses' heart. And so Moses, as a response, prays to God, now show me your glory. Moses was hungry for more of who God was. 
someone's going to run up and tell them to stop that. Thanks, Mavi. Um, <laughs> is that God's glory? It could be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Moses cries out, now show me your glory. And the Lord replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Moses asked for God's glory and God showed him his goodness. God's glory in his goodness is his protection and promise over Moses, over David and over us. And that's how we can start to understand the indescribable glory of God. Look at verse two, the splendor of God's holiness. Holiness means to be set apart from others. God is unique in his greatness. It's a magnificence like no other. David is showing that we're engaging with someone whose glory and power holds a magnificence like no other. And he is worthy of being worshipped. This power and glory is something to be declared, something to be honoured, something important. Act one, in heaven, God's glory and power. It's his goodness and his greatness. Act two, location, storm. Act two, above the storm, God's glory and power. David uses eight verses likening the main character, God's voice, to a storm. Verse three, God's voice is over the mighty waters. He's in control. His glory is thundering over the waters. Verse seven, voice strikes with flashes of lightning. Loudly, God is in control. Verse four, God is powerful and majestic. Verse five takes place in Lebanon. And we can kind of see a bit of a geographical map here with the storm coming around that area. I feel like a weather woman doing this. Um, we're at the top of Israel, at the bottom, where Tyre is, I think that's the top, the bottom of Israel, and then Kadesh is the desert, and there's mountains, and anyway, where that green is, that's where the storm was. Okay, I'm not going to be a weather woman. But Lebanon, that's where we are, was known for its cedar trees because of their size, diameter, and lifespan. They're supposed to be an incorruptible part of nature. Yet God's voice breaks them into pieces. During Moses' time, the man from Exodus, there is a tribe called the Canaanites who were infamous for their worship of demonic idols, taboo sexual acts and child sacrifices. And the Lebanon mountain range mentioned here was considered by the Canaanite tribe to be the dwelling place of these gods. But this godly, supposedly powerful mountain range appears to be as weak as a newborn baby calf or ox. Verse six, God's power ruptures the immovable idolatry of Lebanon. Verse eight and nine. The desert is shaken and the forests stripped. They are exposed. What do we see in the storm? God's glory and power 
exposes and disrupts our humanity. When we're in the storms of life, like King Lear, we're forced to recognize our weaknesses, aren't we? We spend all our money, we realize money doesn't grow on trees. We get cancer, we realize we can't heal ourselves. We fall into addiction, we realize we don't have the strength to step out of it. We experience death of a loved one. We realize we don't have control over life or death. We lose our job or our home. We realize that we don't have the stability that we once thought we did. Even think of the fires in Hawaii this month. 11,000 people have been displaced from their homes. Heartbreaking. But the foundations that we build our life on, wealth, self-control, desire, power, are exposed as foolish. We're helpless. When we attempt to find strength, peace, and security, where we try to look for those things are extremely displaceable when storms come upon our lives. What we see from the passage is God's power and his glory can cause somewhat of a self-quake. He interrupts, stirs, and exposes your helpless priorities if they're not him. Personally, my friends will know this, I'm a bit of a people pleaser, and it drives a real anxiousness within me how other people view me. And if I had no friends by the end of today, I know I would be a shell of a person. I would be quaking, I would be shook. Because I'm still learning to trust that who God says I am is enough. It's my lack of trust, that's why. He's the only one I need. God's power is loud and weighty. God is jealous for your attention, isn't he? For the physicians out there, the stronger object displaces the weaker one to make way for itself. When our foundations are misaligned, God's glory powerfully interrupts and displaces fragility and instability to make way for his glory and goodness. Act two, scene one. God's power and glory exposes our humanity. Act two, scene two. God's power and glory brings judgment. As God's glory rages and strikes through this storm, a sound of judgment and salvation is evident. This is the set-apart, indescribable God in Genesis 1 who spoke creation into being, yet has the power to destroy it. And this idea is confirmed through the start of verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The word flood in the passage is the only time it is translated directly from the word flood that was used in the story of Noah earlier on in Genesis. It's the only time that Hebrew word is used in this psalm and in the flood in Noah. David was using the scriptures he knew about judgment to give a warning. So who who was Noah? Well, Noah was a man who walked faithfully with God, but the people around him didn't. The people around him were corrupt, full of violence, ignoring God. The creator God had created them a right to life, and they took it from him, 
They didn't say thank you. And they ran into self-indulgence, carry on eating and drinking and getting married, building houses with not a thought for God. So God said, I'm going to put an end to this. And so he sent a flood to the land to destroy all the evil. But Noah and his family would be protected on an ark because of their faithfulness to God's design for the world. The flood was an execution of justice and judgment over violence, murder, sexual morality, incest. The Bible describes the people as being full of evil in every way. God was deeply troubled. He is deeply troubled by sin. He had created humanity for much more than this. But the people on the earth, they chose not to want God. So they didn't get him. If we don't choose God, we don't get him. We know from the first few verses in this psalm about God's holiness. He set apart from us because of his goodness. And we know about his sovereignty in control of the waters and the land. So also he is sovereign over the judgment of evil. Our evil in the world as we live not according to God's good ways, but our self-destructive ways of wealth, self-control, desire, power. David is giving a warning in the poem. It's an illustration of divine judgment over sin. Look at this God of such glory, majesty, and power. He's saying, don't ignore this sovereignty. A judgment between the right way of God and the wrong way of the world is coming. This is not something to take lightly. From the picture we're presented in the storm, this is serious judgment. How are we going to respond? Let's jump to Act 3, Location on Earth. We've come from heaven in the storm to earth where God's power and glory brings peace and strength in this judgment. Look at verses 10 and 11. The second half of verse 10. The Lord who is over the floods also sits as king forever. We are led within the storm, like David and Noah, to an eternal king that provides strength and peace. (coughs) How did we get here? How can we know peace from this sovereign, powerful God? How can we today cry glory, as they do in verse 9, at the terrific nature of this God? Do you know another point in history when an earthquake and a king were involved in the same story? Matthew 26. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the tombs broke open. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' death split the earth and made it tremble as God's wrath towards our sin 
was appeased by the blood of Jesus. Our salvation and right to eternal life was achieved by the work of God, not ourselves, as his judgment was administered. Sin and death was displaced by the weight of his glory and an outpouring of his strength and blessing of peace was achieved for anyone who wants to be considered as God's people. Your salvation can be eternity with God. That's what the cross has done. Endless peace. Jesus gave us himself. That is why we have peace. God emptied all of heaven in the person of Jesus so you could receive his blessing. Storms are powerful. But David is saying that God is above the storm. He's powerful enough to carry you above the storm of life and the storm of judgment with his strength and peace. If you let him. Our three acts. God's glory and power in his goodness. God's glory and power is above the storm. And God's glory and power brings strength and peace to his people. So what's the allergy of the play, the poem, the application? What's the meaning of this psalm for who we are in relation to God today on the 20th of August? Well, the psalm begs two questions of us. When you're stripped bare and shaken by the difficulties of life, by the storm that is currently tormenting you, where does your peace come from? Is it from the King of glory who wants to give it to you? We fret and grow in anxiousness in financial difficulties, dysfunction, sickness, loss, rejection and heartache because we've lost control of the situation. We're shown not to be the master of our own lives. We panic at the storm around us and start shouting at the skies in frustration like King Lear, self-destructing, getting angry at people that have nothing to do with the situation, lashing out in unhealthy coping strategies, drunkenness, drugs, sex, power to try and retrieve some control again. Why? Because we lack in trusting the creator who spoke the waters into existence and gave you breath in your lungs and is over the mighty waters. We have convinced ourselves that it is better to be in paradise without God than in the wilderness with him. even though we're faced with an eternal judgment. These storms of suffering are powerful, but God's peace is continually shown throughout the Bible to be powerful and majestic in the midst of them all. This is his glory. This is his goodness. I have uh, family friends at home from Belfast. They're a family of four, all who have a really strong relationship with God. But they're one of those families, and I'm sure you know one, where everything always seems to go wrong. They're riddled with suffering. One of the kids had to drop out of school when she was 15 with a long-term illness, never got to go back to her education. Mum got diagnosed with breast cancer. Dad got long COVID. 
Their house was actually flooded a couple of months ago because of bad infrastructure. One of the kids was getting married and her auntie died the same week. One thing after another, one storm after another. But I look at them and witness the strength of their faith and resilience, which they have only because they receive God's peace in their lives, because they realize that they can't help themselves. So they relinquish their control to allow God to carry them, to allow the eternal king to lift them through the storm. Will you receive this blessing of peace from him? Second question. How will you respond to his glory, which is good? Whether you're a Christian here today or not, the question still stands. Will you listen to God's voice, to the words in the Bible of his judgment over the world's ways, or will you continue to ignore his power and glory? Or will you respond to the interruption of his goodness? The people in the temple cry glory as they are awestruck at the mightiness and majesty of the power of God. Where does your glory go to? Is it in someone else? Is it something else? (laughs) And does this have the power to take control for you and protect you? Does it have the power over death? What is that for you? Moses responds to God's glory by asking for more of it. David responds in awe and wonder at the mightiness of God's judgment and peacefulness. He understands how God's glory is his wrath and his judgment, but also his protection and his peace and his provision. And God's glory is all of these things and there's no inconsistencies within it. If David tells the angels to give God the honor due to his name, then how much more are we as humans who God sent his son to so we could have a freedom of relationship with him? How much more are we to ascribe, to give glory to him in prayer, in song, and with our bodies? That is the correct response. Peace and strength from an all-powerful, glorious, enthroned God in the storm now and for the eternal judgment to come when Jesus returns again. What a comfort that is. This God doesn't leave you in the suffering. So we don't need to panic when the world lets us down. We don't need to worry in the storm. And it's an eternal provision that isn't shaken or uprooted by other gods, but stands strong in its foundation. Eternal strength and peace from an eternal king who is endlessly glorious and invites you into his temple, invites you into his kingdom of people that live by his voice, invites you to have a place on the ark like Noah to save you from the flood. If only King Lear knew this, maybe his emotional turmoil and perhaps fatal end could have been prevented. How will you respond to God's glory, which is good? A verse from Hebrews 12 is so helpful 
in cementing all of this together. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God of glory and power. God above the storm. How will you respond? End scene. I'm going to invite the band up um, and I will pray for us as we come to respond in worship now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of glory and power, that you are a God who carries us above the storm, that you sent your Son, Jesus, to appease your wrath so that we could be united with you, so that you could pour out your gifts of strength and peace and endless blessings to protect us. Lord, will you help us to look into our hearts and see where we're crying glory and where it's not your name? Will you help us to look up to the heavens and see you? Will you help us to look to the cross, Lord, and be in awe at what you have done for us? Will you help us as we come to sing now to cry out glory to you because of your name, because of who you are, and because you're present here with us now in your love and in your glory.